Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we continue in your presence, I, I do pray that those words that we just sang would be the desires of our hearts. God, that you would be magnified in us. And so, Father, I pray that we would be living our lives in such a way that would reflect who you are because that's when you are honored and glorified in us, when we are living out who you've created us to be as a reflection of who you are. And Father, I confess for all of us today, it's really easy to put other things on the throne of our lives rather than you. And I pray as we spend some time in your word this morning that if that's the case, that you would expose those things to us so that we can make changes and be the people that you've called us to be. I pray today that you would help us to understand what it means to be your followers. Father, as we gather today, I I know that there are many things that are burdening us, that are weighing us down, and Father, I pray that you would meet us where we are, that you would extend grace and mercy, that we would be able to cast our cares on you because you care for us. That's what your word tells us to do. May we sense your presence at work in our lives and at work in the world around us and help us to keep our eyes fixed on you so that we never grow weary and lose heart. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Got to move my own furniture today. It's okay. It's good to see everybody. For those of you that I haven't uh, had a chance to meet yet, my name is Bill. I'm the lead pastor here at the table. And so just really excited that you have chosen to worship with us today. It's actually a, um, it's kind of an exciting day for us. In the second service, we're going to baptize four folks. Um, so we've got two men and two um, boys, which is interesting, um, that are going to be baptized in the second service. So we get to celebrate what God is doing in their lives. Also, this last week on Wednesday, we finished up our uh, what we call our formed class. And for those of you that aren't familiar with that language, it's a, a study that we have. It's kind of our pathway to partnership. And so coming out of our um, time over the last four weeks, we have had eight folks um, that have said they want to uh, become official partners with us at the table. And so that's really exciting to see um, God doing those things too. William is real excited. I appreciate that. No, it's it's really good. Um, but it's, it's good to see everyone here this morning as well. For those that are joining us online, thanks for, for tuning in there also. I don't know about you guys. Um, I am not a huge board game player. Um, I'd rather do other things that are more active than play board games. But we do play board games from time to time as a family. You know, we'll, we'll have family game night or something like that. And one of the games that we play together as a family, it's one that my daughter Caroline, especially right now, likes to play, and that is Monopoly. And I'm sure everybody's played Monopoly. It's a universal, you know, sort of game. Some may like it, others don't. But I grew up playing Monopoly too. It was a, a game that we played as a family when I was a kid. But looking back on it, we had some really interesting not necessarily rules, but I would say norms, the way that we played. Because we played with, for lack of a better term, gentlemen's agreements and fiscally conservative criteria. So here's what I mean by that. So when we were playing, if somebody had already purchased a property in a certain color and we landed on one that 
could, hadn't yet been purchased, we weren't allowed to purchase that, right? So somebody else kind of already had dibs on that color, so we didn't do that. I think my parents told us that, you know, between my two sisters so that we wouldn't fight. But the other thing is, it was very fiscally conservative in that you had to have a lot of cash before you purchase something. We didn't want to get over leveraged. And so that's just the way we played. I thought that's the way everybody played. I thought that's how you were supposed to play. And then all of a sudden, I started playing with my wife, Mandy. And I realized that there are a totally different set of rules or different ways to play the game. And now the way that we play it as a family, it's very cutthroat. Um, you buy whatever you can, whenever you can, regardless of how much money you have. It doesn't make any difference. It's all about accumulating assets for yourself. You worry about it at the end of the game. And so for somebody that in real life is fiscally conservative, I'll tell you, it makes me a little nervous sometimes. I get a little bit afraid of what's going to happen while I'm playing this game. Now, I know all of you are probably aware of how Monopoly works, probably played it all all of you have played it before, and basically you know, you go around the board, you take your turn, you roll the dice, and when you land on a property, you purchase it, and it's all about accumulating properties for yourself so that at some point later in the game, you can build houses and hotels and then seek to bankrupt all the other players as they pay exorbitant amounts of rent when they land on your property. That's the point. And then, of course, the Famous sort of rule, whenever you pass go, you collect $200. Could you imagine playing Monopoly? I don't, this would never actually happen, but could you imagine what it would be like if you played with somebody who was so afraid of losing something in the game that they refused to do anything? Never take a turn, never roll the dice, never pass go, never collect $200. Now, again, like nobody would ever actually do that. I mean, it's crazy to think that, but it, it's like on the, on the surface, if, if that were to happen, I would be like, man, what, why, what are you so afraid of? What is the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen in Monopoly is that you lose 1,500 fake Monopoly dollars. Like, just move, do something. What's interesting, though, is I think that's the way a lot of people are in terms of their relationship with God. Just kind of never move past go. Never take a turn. Never roll the dice. Never collect $200. Last year that we rolled out our, what we refer to as our table pathway. Table pathway, just a way to describe the stages of growth as a follower of Christ within the context of our church. It's the language that we use to describe the stages of spiritual growth. And there are four of them. First is explore, and then grow. Third is build, and then the fourth is multiply. And so it's in that first stage, it's the explore stage, where maybe if you're in that stage, you're not really sure about what you believe, maybe kicking tires on faith, trying to figure things out a little bit. Or also in that explore stage, as we've kind of identified it, it may be a person who's taken that step across that line of faith and really believes in Jesus, has trusted Christ as their Savior, but that's kind of the extent of it. And I think a lot of people get stuck in that stage. I see people who are stuck in that stage, and I'll tell you, here's what it looks like, practically speaking. It looks like a person who shows up in a church service, maybe on a regular basis, maybe an irregular basis. They enjoy the service, but they don't necessarily think about things of faith during the week, 
Or maybe the things that they hear never really translate to how they're living their lives on a regular basis. And so I see people like that who get stuck in that stage, and I think, man, listen, I want you to know God wants so much more for you than just that. God wants you to to begin to grow so that you understand who he's created you to be and the life that he's offered to us so that we can experience that abundant life. And God wants to give you a, a, a purpose in your life as you take the things that he's given to you and you begin to use them to invest in the lives of other people and build the kingdom. And then for a lot of us, he even wants us to take that next step, that last step, where we're intentionally investing ourselves in the lives of other people to become multipliers. What God wants us to do as his followers is to be courageous and take those steps, roll the dice, move around the board. He wants us to be courageous. And so today we are beginning a new series that we have titled called To Be Courageous. So what we're going to do over the next several weeks is talk a little bit about Jesus and the disciples. Several portions of scripture that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks are about calls of disciples that Jesus offered to people. And so we're going to talk about some of those. We'll see the interaction between Jesus and his disciples as they're really coming to understand who Jesus is. And so we'll see people that he invited close in. But as I think about how people get stuck in that explore stage, I think there are different reasons that that might happen. For some people, it's an issue of maybe understanding. They just don't understand what a disciple is supposed to do. So we're going to talk about that. For some people, I think they hear maybe what a disciple is, and they understand that, but they think that they're not qualified. And so today, we're also going to talk about that. But here's what I want to challenge you with. And this is the challenge that is for today, but it's the challenge that is going to carry through the entire series. The challenge for us all is, as we think about ourselves as followers of Christ, is to be courageous. And I'm going to define a little bit about what that means this morning for us as well. So here's what we're looking at. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Luke 5, 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be on the screen as I read it in a second. Or if you are a YouVersion Bible app user and um, you know how to navigate your way to our live event, you can follow along there. There's always lots of helpful things um, in that live event. But this passage of scripture that we're looking at today is probably the most famous call passage of a disciple. It's the call of Peter, who went from being a fisherman to a fisher of men. So let me read this section. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when 
Simon Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And what we get in Luke's life story of Jesus, Luke's gospel, especially with this story, is a narrator's perspective on the call of Peter. But I wonder what it would be like to hear it from Peter himself. Maybe it would have been something like this. Yeah, so you want to know about the time that Jesus called me to be a fisher of men. I'll tell you the story. You know, at this point, I had been somewhat acquainted with Jesus because I'd heard him teach a few times. And, you know, like everybody else who heard him teach, I was just astonished at the things that he said because he didn't teach like other rabbis. I mean, it was just different. Also, by the time that this happened, Jesus had actually even healed my mother-in-law, which, don't tell her this, but I think that was a good thing. So it was on that morning, we had actually just finished up fishing, and we were on the bank of the lake, we were washing our nets, cleaning them out, getting ready to put everything away. And then here came Jesus. And I could see that there was a large crowd of people following him, and I don't know, maybe it was like a 1,000 people, maybe as many as 1,500. There were a lot. And where we were on the bank of the lake, there was actually a steep, smooth bank. And it was very clear that Jesus was looking for a place to gather together where he could be seen and heard by all these people. And where we were created that sort of natural amphitheater. And so Jesus came up to me and said, hey, Peter, let me use your boat. And I was more than happy to allow Jesus to teach from the boat that day, pushed out a little bit from the shore and began to teach the people. I was really excited that he would let me do something like that for him. And it's funny now, too, as I think about it, I don't even remember what he talked about that day. It might sound bad, but the truth is my focus is more on what happened after he was teaching than what he was doing that day while he was teaching. Because it was after Jesus finished teaching that he said, hey, Peter, let's go fishing. I was more than happy to let Jesus use my boat to teach the people. I didn't want to go fishing. I thought that was going to be a huge waste of time. But you got to understand why. First, we had literally just cleaned out all the seaweed from our nets. We were ready to put them away. And now Jesus says, hey, I want to go fishing again. But even more significantly than that, I mean, you've got to understand the way that we fish. We fish with these really large nets that have weights at the bottom and floats at the top. We throw them out into the lake, and they create like a net wall. Fish swim in. When they do, we kind of wrap it around them. They can't swim out, and that's how we catch fish. We do it at night, not during the day. Not during the heat of the day, because fish are smart. They swim out into the deeper parts of the lake where it is cooler. And if we threw our nets out there, they just swim underneath. So I'm thinking, Jesus, why are we doing this? This is dumb. Don't make me do this. I didn't say that. Because when Jesus says, hey, let's go fishing, what are you supposed to do? I guess we'll go. 
And you guys know what happened in the rest of the story. I mean, we put our nets in, and I don't know what happened. I don't know how it happened, but all of a sudden, there were so many fish in our nets that the nets began to break as we pulled the nets into the boats. The boats began to sink, and that's when I got down on my knees and said, Get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. See, I understood the Hebrew scripture that said, Nobody sees the face of God and lives. I thought I could die in that moment. And that's when Jesus looked at me and said, Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you're not going to catch fish anymore because you're going to be a fisher of men. And so as soon as we got the boats back to the shore, we just left our nets, left our boats, left my dad, left our friends, and we followed Jesus. While the circumstances of Peter's call are very unique, the call as a follower of Jesus, it's universal. It's a call that's given to all of us, extended to all of us, so that Jesus welcomes us into his presence as followers of Jesus, and then he wants us to be his disciples. But I think what happens is that for a lot of people, they don't understand what that really means. They just don't really understand what it means to actually be a disciple of Jesus. And so I want to define for us today what it means to be a disciple. And I think there are three things that really define what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Number one, a disciple of Jesus is one who has faith in Jesus. In our series that we started the year with, the early years, we spent a lot of time talking about who Jesus is. And so we talked about Jesus as being fully God and fully man. He is the Son of God who came to be our Savior. And that's where life as a disciple starts. It starts with belief in who Jesus is. It's, uh, it's, it's to take that step across the line of faith and trust Jesus as your Savior. That's where discipleship actually starts. It's interesting in that passage, we don't read a ton of the exchange between Jesus and Peter. There's not a lot of dialogue. But one of the things that we see is that Peter says, get away from me, Lord. And that word Lord actually in first century Greek could be used a couple of different ways. It could be just a, a sign of respect, like get away from me, sir. It could have been used that way. But I think contextually with what Peter is doing, he's saying far more than that because that term Lord is also a term that is used to describe God. And I think in that moment, though Peter had been around Jesus before and heard him teach and seen his mother-in-law brought back to health again, I think it was in this moment with this miraculous catch of fish that Peter realized for the very first time Jesus was more than just a prophet, but that he was God in the flesh in some way and that he was the Messiah, the Savior. And so it was in that moment that Peter placed his faith in Jesus. So that's the first characteristic of a disciple is one who has faith in Jesus. The second characteristic is of a disciple is that your life is being shaped by Jesus. And we understand this really from the meaning of the word disciple. Disciple just means learner. But it's not learner in the sense of just take in information. It is to take in information so that my life is changed as a result of that. It's, 
it wasn't unusual for rabbis to have disciples. And the disciples of a rabbi, they would often follow them around, listen to their teaching. But then what they were supposed to do was become a model of the one that they were following. And that's exactly what Jesus wants for us. As we follow him, he he wants to begin to shape our lives, to do something in us so that we become a model of who he is. And so our lives are shaped by Jesus. Third thing that a disciple is, or third characteristic that defines a disciple, it's first one who has faith in Jesus, one whose life is being shaped by Jesus. The third characteristic is that we are also helping other people define Jesus too. And so again, in the interchange with, uh, with Jesus and Peter, this is Jesus saying to Peter, from now on, you're not going to catch fish anymore. You're not going to be a fisherman, but you are going to fish for men. And it would be really easy for us to dissect those words and try to figure out exactly what Jesus meant with that. Was he talking about methodology and uh, maybe manipulation or trickery? And I don't think we should look at that. I just think we just look at it for what it says on the surface. And here was Jesus talking to a fisherman saying, that's not going to be your job anymore. You're going to be fishing for other things. So part of the reason that people get stuck is because they don't understand what a disciple actually is. One who has faith in Jesus whose life is being shaped by Jesus, and who's helping other people to follow Jesus too. That's what God desires for us. But it's that third characteristic that causes some people to pause, where they think, well, wait a minute. If that's what it means to be a disciple, I can't do that because I don't know enough and I'm not good enough, so I can't do it. So let's talk a little bit about the qualifications of a disciple, because they're probably not nearly as high as you think they are. I'll give you a couple of qualifications of a disciple. Number one, first qualification of a disciple is you have to be a sinner, right? Did you notice when Peter has this miraculous catch of fish, he says to Jesus, get away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. The first qualification of a disciple is you have to understand you're a sinner, I don't understand that you, you missed the mark and that we need help. And we need help from Jesus, the one who has come to save us, right? That's the, the first characteristic. And so while all of us would say that's a universal characteristic that fits all of us, and that's a good thing, all of us are, meet that first criteria where some people get messed up is they, they, they don't understand just how sinful they are. Because the moment that we begin to think, as followers of Christ, I can handle it, I can do it, that's where we get stuck. And so we have to have an accurate understanding of who we are as sinful people who are in desperate need of God to do something in our hearts. So that's first. got to be a sinner. So all of us fit that one. The second uh, quality of a disciple is that you have to be humble got to be humble. And this seems to make sense. I mean, if part of what Jesus wants to do in our lives is shape us so that we become a reflection of who he is, we have to be humble enough to say, I need that work to be done in my life. And so we have to allow him to begin to do something in us. And so, you know, part of it is an accurate view of who we are, but it's also at the same time an accurate view of who Jesus is. Because Jesus, because of who he is as the Son of God, who's the Savior of the world, because of what he came to do, 
Well, the result of that is that he is also Lord. He is to be the Lord of our lives. And so, like we sang in that song this morning, it's he's the one who needs to take that leadership position in our lives where we're humble enough to submit our every aspect of our life back to him. So you got to be a sinner. It's easy. It's all of us. you got to be humble. And then the third characteristic or quality of a disciple is that you have to be obedient. You have to be obedient to do what God wants you to do whenever he wants you to do it. Or at the very least, to do everything that you can to be obedient to do what God wants you to do whenever he wants you to do it. It's verse 11 where it says that Peter, who along with James and John... It's Peter who gets the, the headlines in, in, in Luke's account. It says that they left everything and followed. To be obedient as disciples of Jesus, we have to do everything that we can to be obedient to do what Jesus calls us to do when he calls us to do it. Now, for most of us, that doesn't necessarily mean that we will leave everything that we know behind to follow Jesus. It probably means for the vast majority of us, it means that we seek to be obedient to do what Jesus calls us to do right where we are. So a disciple, it's really important to understand so that we don't get stuck anywhere along our journey. A disciple is one who has faith in Jesus, whose life is being shaped by Jesus, and who also points others to Jesus too. And just so you think that the criteria is out of reach for most of us, it's not at all. We have to be sinners, we have to be humble and be obedient. But then the question is, what do we actually have to do? Like, what do we do as followers of Christ, as disciples of Jesus? I'm going to give you a couple of things that we should be doing. And this is not, I want you to understand, this is not step one and then step two. These are like things that are our responsibilities kind of combined at the same time. The first responsibility that we have is to sharpen our tools. So it is our responsibility to make sure that our tools are sharp so that when God is ready to use us, we are ready to be used. That sharpening tools phrase is something that I heard all the way back when I was in college. And a professor said once in a class, I felt like, I mean, it was almost a passing comment. He said, listen, guys, here's what's really important for you to do. Make sure that your tools are as sharp as they can possibly be so that you're ready. And that statement, though, it was a passing phrase. It was something that changed the direction of my life or at least very much solidified the direction that I was taking in my life. And so I want you to understand that's our responsibility as disciples is to make sure that our tools are sharp. What are the tools that God has given to us? Well, it's our knowledge. It's our experiences. It's our our gifts and abilities. It's our, our spiritual gifts. It's who we are, the way that God has wired us. And so it's our responsibility to make sure all of those things are as sharp as they can possibly be so that when God gives us the opportunities, we're ready to step into the opportunities and to be used by God to make a difference in the life of somebody else. Now, so the question is, how do we sharpen those tools? Well, that's growth. 
It's growing in our knowledge and understanding of who God is and what God is up to in the world. It's growth in our understanding of who we are and how God has gifted us so that we understand exactly how God could use us. That's why it's so important to immerse ourselves in God's Word on a regular basis because we need the Word of God to be speaking to us so that God can use us. And so that's why one of the things that we've done this year is to encourage everybody to be reading through the New Testament with us this year. And so if you don't know that we're doing that, we're doing that through one of the Bible plans on the YouVersion Bible app. And there's actually a link in our live event so that you could join that plan and join us in the reading of the New Testament. We have to be reading God's Word because that's how our tools get sharp. So that's the first responsibility that we have is to make sure that our tools are sharp. And then from there, we step into every opportunity that God gives to us to point people back to Jesus. We step into those opportunities courageously to point other people back to Jesus. I mentioned this before. I think that there are three spheres of influence that we have. Relational spheres where we have influence. And it doesn't necessarily mean as followers of Christ that we leave everything behind and look for places that God wants us to go. Because for most of us, it's just pointing people back to Jesus in this, those spheres and those places where we already are. And I think that there are there are three of them, at least three. The first is at home. So at home, what are you doing to point people back to Jesus? The second sphere is in the church. And so I just ask you to think, if, if you consider the table to be your church home, how are you using those tools that God has given to you to point people back to Jesus? And if you are here, again, and you consider the table to be your church home and you are not doing something, but maybe you've heard something today that says, hey, maybe I need to be doing something, listen, let us know. We have a place for you. Let's talk about how you are gifted and those tools that God has given you and how we can make sure that you're using those to influence the lives of people here. The home and the church and the third sphere of influence that we have is our community which this one I feel like is maybe a little bit more of a choose-your-own-adventure sort of thing because it's the place where you spend the most of, um, amount of your time. For a lot of people, that might be at work. You know, for others, it may be with parents of, a, uh, parents of other kids that are on maybe your, your child's baseball team or their dance troupe or, or, or whatever. You know, maybe it's the place where you work out, your gym, where does that place that you spend the most amount of your time, it could be in your very specific neighborhood. But what we, we have to do is when God gives us those opportunities, we step in and we point people back to Jesus. And here's exactly how we do that. We give you three things because I want to be super practical. So when you walk out of service today, we're going to be done in just a minute. You know here is exactly what you need to do. Number one, pray regularly. In those three spheres... Who are those people that you know need Jesus? Be praying for them specifically. Pray regularly. Number two, here's how you point people back to Jesus. Be an example always. So in everything we do, we need to be a reflection of who Jesus is. As his character flows through us and we're patient and loving and kind and all of that, we see the world the way that God sees the world and, and we react to the world the way that God would react to the world, the way that Jesus lived his life in the world that he lived in. We learn from his model so that we're an example always. 
That doesn't mean we'll always get it right, but at the forefront of our thoughts, in everything that we do, we've got to be asking ourselves the question, am I a reflection of who Jesus is? And then the third thing, so first is pray regularly, be an example always, step into those conversations courageously. As soon as you see an opening for a spiritual conversation with someone, don't shy away. It's really easy to do because that's, that's kind of a scary thing sometimes. But step into those conversations courageously and begin to share Jesus. Just think about our monopoly metaphor again. A lot of people, I think, get stuck on go. Never take a turn. Never roll the dice, never move around the board, never pass go, never collect $200. For those people, I want to say, what do you have to be afraid of? Because in this process, as, as a follower of Jesus, to do exactly what he's called us to do, he's given us everything that we need, every resource that we need to take those steps past that line of faith and to begin to grow so that he shapes our lives and we can experience the abundant life that he offered. He gives us the resources. We already have the tools available to us. All we have to do is surrender them to him to be used by him to point other people back to Jesus. And he gives us opportunities on a regular basis to be praying regularly, be an example always. And then step into those conversations courageously. Because as a follower of Jesus, what he wants us to do is be courageous. Will you pray with me, Heavenly Father? I pray that you would help us to do that. I confess, it is easy sometimes to be afraid or, or, or to think that we're maybe not qualified to do what you've called us to do as your disciples, but... And, and Lord, I know we're going to see this over the next few weeks. Your original disciples, the 12, man, they, they weren't the smartest. The, they, they, they weren't the most qualified. But Jesus took them from where they were and radically changed their lives. And through them changed the world. And I know you can do the same things through us as we humble ourselves and as we're obedient to you. So throughout this week, Father, I pray that you would help us to be courageous as we pray for those that you place in our lives that need Jesus. As we seek to be an example in everything that we do, that your character would be flowing through us. And so God, as you give opportunities, may we step into those conversations and do so with courage because that's what you've called us to. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.